This episode is brought to you by Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma. When it's time for an aircraft component inspection, overhaul, repair, or replacement, you need experienced technicians you can trust and friendly service you can count on. Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma, a family-owned business since 1959, delivers just that. Our techs have real-world experience and provide sales, service, and overhaul for piston engine aircraft accessories. We also have limited turbine capabilities such as fuel pumps, starter generators, and prop governors. And we can overhaul propellers ranging from fixed pitch to turbine. Propeller pickup and delivery service is available. And one more thing, mention this podcast to receive 5% off your next sale, service, or overhaul. Visit aircraftaccessoriesofok.com. Hi, I'm Mike Bush. I'm Paul New. And I'm Colleen Sterling. Welcome to Ask the AMPs from AOPA. Ask the AMPs is where we uh, try to address any and all maintenance questions that come our way. So if you have a question, reach out to us at podcasts at AOPA.org. And if you like the show, subscribe on Google Podcast, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to get on our uh, email list for our uh, monthly newsletter and weekly uh, maintenance stories, you can do that by texting the word SAVVY, S-A-V-V-Y, to 33777. And the text bot will ask you for your email address and put you on the list. Well, I'm in annual now. For the Cardinal. oh, that's a that's a long conversation. As, as soon as I was winding down the interior refurbishment, it went out of annual. So it's like just out of the frying pan into the fire. I'm pulling my mags this year and having them overhauled because somebody named Mike Bush says a 500 hour is a good mark for checking on your mags. Yeah. You don't want them. You don't want them overhauled. I'm, no, you don't want a 500 hour Iran. I asked for the Iran, and he said, "You mean the 500 hour?" And I said, "I'll take that. <laughs> I'll take that and raise you three hundred dollars." Who did who did you decide to send them to? I went to Van Nuys. It, they're oh. local, and uh, Paul Cortapetis has had really good luck with them. So, oh, um, good. And they said they had a one to two day turnaround, which you just can't beat. Oh wow! wow. Yes, yes. So they're in the mail today. So awesome. That's yeah. almost unheard of. Yes. Well, the first place I called, which I won't mention, um, they're having some difficulties with personnel and sourcing, and they said three to four weeks, and they were very apologetic. So not wanting to, you know, it's like choosing, should I do my mags now and wait four weeks? Or maybe um, I, I was lucky to find something quicker. Let's put it that yeah. way. Yeah. You know, the <laughs> these supply chain issues and what do they call it? The great resignation, the, 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 right. the labor shortages are, they're creating huge problems in, 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 in the maintenance world. This is like, this is a terrible time to have to tear down an engine. We're, if we're, you don't have to. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we're, we're hearing six and nine month turn times on, on, uh, on overhauls and stuff. Um, and it's a combination of the fact that parts are not available and that, and that's true for both Lycoming and Continental. And the shops are having a hard time with staffing. So the combination is like a, a perfect storm. We've even had trouble getting certain part number oil filters. 
Yes. Which is bizarre. Oh, no. They're yeah. out of stock at Spruce West in 4108s. And uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Who would have ever <laughs> thought? Oil filter, right. Yeah, we, we I, I saw a situation uh, this week where if you were unfortunate enough to own a magnificent airplane called a Cessna 421 Golden oh, Eagle. Yes. Um, there, there's a there's a standing recurring AD on the starter adapter for the Gitzo engines in those airplanes. And um, there are no starter adapters available. Apparently, Continental stopped manufacturing them and and made some sort of a deal with Hartzell Engine Technologies that they would that they would pick up uh, responsibility for manufacturing them, and uh, apparently they are not manufacturing any, and there are none to be had. If you have a Gitzo engine, you may be on the beach for an indeterminate period yeah. of time. That's an the, expensive uh, doorstop. Yeah, and the the turbocharger for the. 210R models, the P210R and the T210R, the, the P210, the, big one. the yeah. big one. Yeah, that's no longer available. And they're trying to get something going for that. But again, it's going to take time. It's, it's what happens when you own an antique. But a 421 is an interesting airplane because I can put three kids through college just doing the maintenance on a 421. <laughs> uh, you probably have. That, that and a Duke. If I had no, those no, two no, 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 don't no, get no, started on the Duke. That's, that's not a fair comparison at all. <laughs> No, I'm just saying those two together, I could get the kids all the way through master's degrees. But the Duke looks so cool. On the it does. And it doesn't even have to have the engines running to look yes. cool. <laughs> it's an inside joke. <laughs> but it is true. We have a Duke at Miramar College. I, did I tell you that? We on, a, have on, a, a, on a pole? No, we have a fully functioning Duke that somebody unloaded on us because they didn't want it anymore. They took the... Uh, the, you know, the donation charity cost. And we run it at the hangar at Montgomery Field just to show students how to run a twin engine airplane. I, I don't know that you can say fully functioning and Duke in the it same sentence. It doesn't fly. <laughs> well, it doesn't fly, but the engines turn, oh, they go this way, okay. you know, and and, the, and we jack it up and we do gear swings on it, all kinds okay. of you know, big twin stuff. But it's a beautiful airplane. Oh, they are. first question is from Chuck, who's having some mystery oil loss. Welcome to the show, Chuck. All right, great, thanks. Uh, yeah, so I fly a 1941 Interstate Cadet, uh, and oh it's my. got a oh, wow. Continental, uh, yeah, yeah, it's, it's an old, old plane, but uh, it's been a good one. Um, yeah. It's uh, It's got a Continental 85-8F in it, so really simple, um, uh, not, a lot of, not a lot of extra stuff bolted onto the engine, but uh, I had a a uh, prop strike in it about three or four years ago and a uh, non-flying incident, but went ahead and took the engine off and had it all taken apart and had all the important parts shipped out and inspected and everything came back in tolerance. So um, went ahead and had it all bolted back together again with some new rings, um, new bearings, new gaskets. It wasn't really a, a total overhaul, um, just sort of put it all back together. And and I've put probably another three or 400 hours on it since then. And, and no complaints about how it runs. It runs just like it did before, except that I've noticed that I go through more oil. Before, I would say about every 10 to 15 hours, I would need to add a quart. And now it's more like every four or five hours. So I haven't really let it bother me too much because oil is pretty cheap. But I've just been curious as time goes on, you know, when we when we take it down for an annual and the, the AMP looks at the plugs, he says, yeah, they look great. You know, and the compressions are all 
75 or better. So as I said, no complaints with how it's running, but I'm just curious, is there something I could look for to figure out where that oil is going and if it's something I need to address or should address? Well, when when they did, first of all, I'm glad you had the prop strike several years ago, because if you had it now, <laughs> you'd still be on the ground. Yeah, <laughs> still be waiting um, for parts. Yeah, the the uh, when they when they did the uh, the the post prop strike teardown inspection, I gather they probably didn't replace the cylinders, but they probably did hone them. And and they pro- and they probably put new rings on the piston. So there's a possibility that that those newly honed rings weren't broken in properly, or there's a possibility that they that they messed up the home job and didn't do as as good a job honing it as as it should have been. I mean, that level of oil consumption is not, you know, an airworthiness issue and, and some is something you could live with. But it does, I mean, it does sound like it was either a problem getting it broken in properly after the cylinders were honed and the new rings were put on. You can, or, maybe, uh, or maybe the hone the you can wasn't done quite stick right. a borescope in there and see if there's still some cross-hatching visible. Have you tried that? I, I have not tried that. So so there yeah. would be a way to actually visually see if the... You can, oh, yeah, yeah. You can sure. see it. Absolutely. Go buy a $200 borescope. Yeah, get yourself a borescope. But, but it's it's very clear on the side of the cylinder. If the cylinder looks really smooth without the cross-hatching evident, or if there's any signs of scuffing, then that's where your oil's going. Yeah. And depending on how they honed it, the normal honing uh, when an engine is overhauled or cylinders are overhauled, it's about a 30-degree angle on the cross-hatching. But often when a teardown inspection is done, they won't do that. They'll just use a ball hone, which is like a bristle brush with a little... Uh, hone ball hones on the end of each of the bristles and it just scratches up the inside of the cylinder so there's not really going to be a pattern uh, but you want to see all those scratch marks and if the cylinder looks um, real kind of gold colored and very shiny like a mirror it's glazed okay all right good to but know. at a quart in four hours for that little engine it's just <laughs> kind of a non-issue yeah okay all right, great. Yeah, get a borescope. You'll have fun. <laughs> we'll do. Our next question is from Tom, who is hoping to minor a major, or is it major a minor? Welcome to the show, Tom. Let us know what you got. All right. Well, hey, it's a pleasure to be here with you, Mike, Colleen, and Paul. Um, longtime listener, first-time caller. You know, I had the privilege of starting my flying career when I was 18 and started as a pilot. And along the way, I've kind of had the benefit of picking up my private license, my commercial rating, and my instrument rating. But then I decided I wanted to really get serious and uh, pick up an A&P license. So I'm a newly minted A&P. And oh, as you know, we get asked to work on um, our friends' airplanes, right? And Or <laughs> give them some advice. Mm-hmm. And so the, literally the first question out of the gate after getting my license, a friend came to me and says, hey, you know, I have this... PA 28180, 1962 model. And he's like, hey, it came from the factory with a stall indicator light, no oral horn. And he's like, I'd like to have a horn installed in addition to the light. So I kind of thought, hey, you know, on the surface, it seems like this is not a major repair. And I was just kind of thinking if a circuit breaker amperage allows for it, maybe we could just wire the horn into the same circuit as the warning light. 
But I kind of wanted, I, I started thinking about that. And, you know, being a, a new A&P, I'm like, you know, I probably need to ask somebody about this before I just uh, decide to tackle it. So I've actually received some conflicting information from other people. Um, some say it could be wired in and signed off after testing. Others said, hey, that might require an STC supplemental type certificate. And then, you know, where would I look uh, to find out if attaching a stall warning horn is legally allowed without having to obtain an STC or complete a 337? You know, how would I approach this from a practical standpoint? Uh, I'll, I'll start. And then Mike and Colleen can weigh in because they study and, and they just know stuff. But as an AMP mechanic, also a pilot, my first thought would be to look at newer versions of the same airplane. Find one where it has the stall warning horn and light. Propose that to the your local FISDO and see if they would accept that as data for modifying yours to mimic that one. Assuming that it's a similar type design, it's a very simple thing to do, but it is the stall warning. So the FA will have a view about hooking another wire to that stall switch, which will increase the current flow through it and, and those kind of things. So there's there are things to consider. But that's just as a as a first without getting into the legal aspects and whether it's major or minor. That's what I would start with. See, because the FAA doesn't want to like go through a lot of work, right? So if you can show them yeah. an example of somebody that's done it and convinced another FAA inspector then the guy that you're talking to will say, well, if it's good enough for him, it's probably good enough for me. And you've kind of saved him all these work because an STC or a 337 or field approval, is too much work and yeah. they don't want to do that work. You don't want to do an STC. That's big money. Yeah. <laughs> because an STC is something that you own and can sell and it has to apply, it doesn't have to, but it generally applies to a, a lot of different airplanes. So a lot more data has to go into it, information. If you do a field approval... If you have an FAA inspector that is willing to do a field approval and they are becoming very difficult to find, you would have to speak to that person to find out what they need first. But as a newly minted FAA mechanic, you should have studied uh, several rules in the FARS and advisory circulars that give you guidance on alterations and repairs. And this would be an alteration, not a repair uh, there's a definition of an alteration. The definition between major and minor is in FAR 1.1. And then the advisory circular 4313-2B is acceptable methods for aircraft alterations, which is kind of the Bible for alterations. You could definitely look there and see, you know, if how it's defined. And, and there are actually, you know, specific advisory circulars for alterations in avionics and panel uh, instruments. Uh, 20-62 Delta is one that you could check. Okay. She just went all school teacher on you there. Did you catch well, that? And, and yeah. in truth, so when I went through AMP school, we learned all that stuff up front in the very first class. And then five years later, you know, <laughs> except for the test questions, I kind of did a brain dump on that. But if you were to get your IA, that's when you really study the FARS and you're expected to know where to find things like this and what the rules are. Being an IA is less about experience in looking at aircraft and more about just understanding the regulations and what makes an aircraft conform to the regulations. So that's where they really brush up the, the paperwork. Excellent. But, okay, good. 
good to know. That's some good advice. Thank you. And and Mike is is has uh, is just bursting with information here. I know he's um, he's a big fan of trying to guide you into calling it a minor alteration because very little things these days um, need to fall into the major category. Most things could be classified as minor, which saves everybody a lot of trouble. So maybe right. Mike has well, something to say. Yeah, as as an A and P who is being called upon to make this alteration. It's your decision as to whether the alteration is minor, one that that you can take responsibility for on your own signature, or whether it's major, which involves somebody else's signature, you know, typically an FA inspector's signature. You know, as Paul said, you, you would not ever consider an STC here unless you were planning to go into the business of, of, of selling horn retrofits to, to Cherokees. But if your intention is just to to get this particular airplane to have a horn, you have to decide whether it's it's uh, uh, would be a major or a minor alteration. It's, it's really your call. And in making that decision, you have a couple of pieces of guidance. You, you've got the most important is the FAR 1.1 definition of what a major alteration is. And it, it, it basically says that, that to be major, an alteration has to have a, an appreciable effect on, on one of us, of a bunch of factors uh, affecting airworthiness. What, you know, structural strength, resistance to uh, deterioration and corrosion, uh, weight and balance, things like that. This clearly wouldn't meet the definition of a major alteration in that regard. Then, then you're supposed to look at, at Part 43, Appendix A, which gives, gives a whole kind of a laundry list of things that, that the FAA considers major alterations. It's not an exhaustive list. It's an exemplary list, but it's supposed to give you an idea of the sorts of things that the FAA considers to be major alterations. And if you look through that list, I'm pretty sure you won't find anything that would suggest that this is a major alteration. So it, it's at least a candidate for a minor alteration. But what sorts of things would you need to consider? Well, you know, first of all, the horn you put in would, would have to, to meet the materials requirements uh, of the certification regulations. So you'd probably want to choose a horn that is used in some certified airplane so that it's past muster. You know, and as Paul said, if, if you can determine that in later models of the Cherokee 180, Piper did put a horn in, then you're really golden because, because then you can say, well, all I want to do is reconfigure this thing so it's like the, the later models. And if, if you did that as a major alteration, you would ask a FISTO inspector for a field approval and say, I just want to do it the way Piper did it, you know, starting in 1982. And you'd probably have a fairly good chance of getting that field approval. But there, you, you may also want to think about whether, whether, it's, whether it's really major enough to, to warrant uh, going to the FAA and asking the, the most important aspect of this is that you would have to 
uh, be satisfied that there is no way that this alteration could mess up the functioning of the original system. Okay, so um, it would have to have whatever isolation diodes, fuses, whatever it is, to guarantee that no matter what happened to this horn that you're adding, it couldn't take out the stall warning light. It couldn't degrade the function of the system that was there. And probably wouldn't be very hard to, to figure out how to do that. So, you know, I would be inclined to tackle this as uh, to see if you can justify it as, as a, a minor alteration that you can just sign off with a logbook entry. Um, but those are some of the things that you would have to consider when you were making that decision as to whether this is within your pay grade to sign off or above your pay grade requiring the FA to get involved. Excellent. Great advice. Thank you to all three of you. Wow. So we, we did study. I like that. Yeah, all three of us. <laughs> All of you. Yeah, I think I think everything from, you know, getting back into the regulations to the field approval might be the best approach to, you know, kind of putting it on your own shoulders and making your call. Right. As well as, you know, looking at newer models and seeing, you know, if you can submit a diagram for a newer model, there's kind of your blueprint right there. So those are that's all great advice. And I'm glad I've called in to ask for that. So, yeah, that's a great question, Tom. We appreciate you calling in. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Enjoy. Thank Good you. Good luck. Have a great day. You too. Thank you. Our next question is from Jay, who is tracking down an oil temperature issue. Go ahead, Jay. Hi, guys. First, I want to say that, you know, I'm a student of, of Mike's Lena Peak Operations and the uh, Oversquare and so forth. And uh, my engine uses very little oil. And uh, after flying like six hours this last week, you know, same place on the dipstick, but I've had, you know, amazing results with that and uh, great range. I flew from Tennessee to Boston nonstop, six hours, and I still had two hours of reserve using Mike stuff. So it's uh, oh, cool. amazing. Wow. But uh, so anyway, uh, I, I heard uh, your podcast, Colleen, and the problems you had on your rebuild with uh, Vernatherm. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think my problem is probably a variation of, uh, of yours, and perhaps you guys can help me figure it out. But I have the Mooney M20F with the IO360 and about 500 hours on it. It's got a G, uh, JPI engine monitor, and the oil pre- uh, temperature probe is located near the number one cylinder up in the front. You can actually see it. Yeah, on the climb out, the problem is that um, it measures 230 or so and trips off my over temp on the oil temperature. And um, when I cross-reference it with the analog gauge, that shows like 190. And then at cruise, the JPI shows on the oil temperature about 195. It'll stabilize somewhere around there. And my analog shows 160. Hmm. Really strange. Um, well, it sounds about about normal to me. Well, I mean, two yeah, things. First, it's, first, it's first of all, this place. Yeah. Yeah. First of all, the JPI is is going to be dead nuts accurate because because they always are. But it's being it's measuring in at the opposite end of the engine from right. from where the analog gauge is, so it's not terribly surprising that the two read different amounts. 
So, yeah, and I've got a data point for you, Jay. Um, when I went to the 930 from the 730 that I had, the JPI 930, they moved the location of the oil temperature pickoff from the front of the engine. I had it just where you had it right there with my oil temperature issues. And they moved it to a mid-engine area. I'm not exactly sure where, but there's something back farther. And miraculously, my oil temperature went down, and it's been just perfect right now. So location matters. Right. So I was concerned whether it was an actual issue or... Um, or indication or, or issue. the location, right? The location yeah. where the probe was. I mean, the the bottom line you could do is you could pull the probe and try your hand at your cooking skills and boil it up in some oil or water and just see if it calibrates. You can always do that. You could do that with an EGT sensor or a CHT sensor. But with a with a JPI sensor, it's kind of a waste of time because they're always within they're a couple of degrees. Yep. Yeah, they're always, yeah. The anal the analog gauge is is somewhat questionable, and it might be worth checking calibration of it. But they're they're measuring it measuring in a different place, and that normally the factory gauge is uh, probe measures it right after it comes out of the oil cooler, and that's the coolest place that the oil is going to be. And then as it circulates through the engine, it it, it absorbs heat, it gets warmer and warmer uh, until it eventually winds up going through the oil pump at it, which is when it's at its hottest, and then winds up going back through the oil cooler and gets cooled down again. So where you measure it makes a lot of difference. What is the optimum spot then to uh, to have the oil temperature probe so that you get a, a realistic reading and know what is reasonable? Because I, I don't want to cook my engine and it, it doesn't really make sense because my cylinder head temperatures are, are even on the cool side. Well, it's not, it's not a question of being a realistic temperature. It's a question of what we're measuring. Normally, we want the gauge to measure oil temperature at the coolest part of the cycle, which is right after it comes out of the oil cooler. Uh, and that spot is probably taken up by the by the factory gauge. So I, I don't know enough about what other places you can screw a probe in in an IO360, but 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 clearly it makes a lot of difference as to as to where you where you put it. I'm looking for something that's relative. Then, and if I knew, okay, that towards the front of the engine at node number one, that cylinder that um, it is going to be 30 degrees hotter or whatever, then I can set my triggering temperature at a higher temperature, knowing that that relative to the you know the analog from the in the back, that it's the same temperature. And so, if it gets above, say. 240 or something like that, or 245 on the JPI, then it's the same as overtemping the analog or something like that. Yeah, make any sense? Right. It it's it's also you're also not guaranteed that that the the delta between the two is going to remain it's the layer. same in all right. in all phase in all phases of flight. Right. Well, I'll, I guess calibrating the factory gauge then is the uh, is the answer, and mm -hmm. it's, it's figure out if it's it seems to me it's it's pretty linear because it follows about. 30 to 35 degrees mm -hmm. difference between the analog and the JPI. Well, that, that should that should make it pretty easy. Yeah, just add 30 to your alarm limit and make that your new alarm, or add 30 to your the upper to, to where it starts to turn red on your analog gauge. All right, and then uh, but calibrate it first, and then uh, and then just uh, set the alarm limit based on that calibration. Well, thank great, you for having Jay. me, guys. Thank okay. you, Jay. 
Thanks right, for coming Jay. on the show. Enjoy. Take care. All righty. Bye-bye. Our next question is from Peter, a fellow Cardinal owner who is facing down his first annual. Go oh ahead, Peter. We're really excited about your question. <laughs> Wait, Colleen is really excited about your question. I am really excited about your question, which is a great question. I bet you are, for sure. Yeah. Well, first of all, all three of you love, love the podcast. And, and Mike, just want to let you know, big fan. I've watched every one of your YouTubes many times over. Learned a lot from you. Um, so this is my first plane. And um, I'm learning as an aircraft curator, not so much an owner, but a curator <laughs> of an aircraft. Well, uh, this yeah. is my first annual, right? And um, I went through the pre-buy process. I enlisted the help of the uh, the type club owner um, to help me do the pre-buy. It was last year, though, so you had to do it virtually. And, you know, for the past several years, you look to the logbooks and the, the annuals are pretty benign. There's a few things done here and there. And then I get it back and I went through my first annual um, which I was afforded to do owner assist. So the first three days, um, I was able to help out, tear things apart, you know, uh, get that experience, which was great. Um, but as my IA was getting into it, it was just one thing after another. And before we knew it, you know, some items on there I knew about it. I asked for like the the service letter to be completed. We stretched uh, well over 120 plus items, and it just got me thinking, like, for that past IA. Where's the accountability? Um, you know, you look at some of the items that, you know, maybe nitpicky on my eyes part, some of those things, but there are also some obvious ones like the American. There's an AD out for that. The uh, belly sump, there is an AD out for that, which somebody in 2003 signed off on, but they didn't complete the work. Um, it's completed now. And just various other things, finding a bucking bar in mm -hmm. the, uh, the, the wing route. Oh, you yeah. Could you, that could you send that? No, could you send that back, please? Yeah. No, no, no wait a minute. Okay. So, so the, you know, the first thing is it, he may have given you 120 discrepancies, but they're right. not 120 airworthiness discrepancies. Yeah. Right. I mean, for example, the bucking bar is clearly not an airworthiness discrepancy because it's not installed in the airplane. <laughs> so it's, it's portable equipment. And, you know, it, it's just that. Doesn't have to meet any specifications yeah. or anything, right? And it doesn't have Paul, my name on it. So. And Paul wants his uh, bucking bar back. <laughs> I mean, I, I I actually haven't found a bucking bar, but I've found an awful lot of uh, of, found of a screwdriver, uh, of five five cell wing. flashlights and stuff, which probably yeah. weigh about as much. Uh, uh, but no, seriously, the the what's really important when you get an annual inspection discrepancy list is to make sure that you get the IA to clearly identify which of those items are airworthiness discrepancies and which ones are are ones that are simply suggestions as to things that you might want to correct. Take care of through the year. And, you know, I, I, I haven't seen your discrepancy list, so I, I can't tell you. But, I mean, in my, in my experience, you know, typically... 20% of the items are going to be bona fide airworthiness discrepancy. Certainly failure to comply with an airworthiness directive is an airworthiness discrepancy. Bucking bar is not an airworthiness discrepancy. <laughs> and, you know, we, we, you need to go through all of them and, and find out which one. Uh, an airworthiness discrepancy means a discrepancy where if you say to the IA, no, nah, I don't really want to do that, He's going to have to say to you, "Well, then I can't. I can't sign off the annual as airworthy." Uh, so it's very, very important 
that the discrepancy list be triaged into airworthiness discrepancies and non-airworthiness discrepancies. Then you asked a, a funny question about where's the accountability, <laughs> and 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 th- that question suggests that you have the misapprehension that annual inspections are actually supposed to catch everything that's wrong with the airplane. But that's not true. An annual inspection at best will only catch a small fraction of the number of things that are done with the airplane. That's the reason we are asked to do them every year is because maybe after 10 years, we will have caught all all the problems. Don't you agree, Paul? Yeah, and another thing is like in our shop, there's um, five five or six of us are IAs. So what we try to do is rotate when a, a returning customer comes in. We try to have a different IA inspect it this year because everybody has a yeah. different view. Yeah, we different, see different eyes things. see different things for sure. Yeah. We're all human. We can't see everything. We actually don't even, you, you just can't do all of that. And some of the things, one of the things on your list here is the tachometer's well off. So as an IA doing the inspection, checking the accuracy of the tachometer is not part of an annual inspection. That's a whole different thing. So we don't check the accuracy of your fuel gauges. We don't check the accuracy of your CHT or your EGT or your tachometer or your manifold pressure. We check that they're operating. That's part of the annual, but to check accuracy is just not part of it. Matter of fact, there's not even a there may be a spec somewhere for the accuracy requirements of your tachometer, but it's not something that we typically see. Every mechanical tachometer originally installed in these antique airplanes, sorry, don't mean to insult the airplane, but it's curator. antique. Yep. Mm-hmm. It's a like, curator, yeah. absolutely. So that tachometer is probably 5 to 10% below spec, and it has been for years. If you as the owner don't squawk it when it comes in, it's not going to be checked. The fuel gauges, mechanic's not going to check that. It turns on the master. If it registers something, there's no requirement for us to go dip the tanks and say, oh, there's 8.6 gallons in each tank, and your gauge shows that there's 10. Oh, we've got to write that up. That's not well. That's in, not in, in fact, in, in a car three airplane, that there's no requirement for the fuel gauges to be accurate, except right. when the tank <laughs> is empty. And when it's yeah. empty, right? When, when the tank is work. empty, the gauge is supposed to read zero. The, any any other time, the the FA doesn't care what what it reads. So, as Mike said, there's a a very defined line. It either it's an airworthiness issue or it isn't. And keep in mind, this has nothing to do with what it costs to be repaired. If it's really expensive and you can't find it, that doesn't mean you can push it off till next year if it's truly an airworthiness issue. If it's not an airworthiness issue, you can just, like the the tachometer, just defer it if you want to. I have several customers that have one of those digital strobing tachometers that Velcros to the top of their dash because their tachometer is so far off and this was the quick, easy fix and that's what they fly with all the time. Well, Peter, you always hear about the first annual being the annual from hell, right? It's oh, just, yeah. And, and it doesn't matter what kind of pre-buy you got or how well the airplane was cared for. You're going to need to make this your airplane and it's going to take several years of going through annuals like this. And each year you'll chip down the list 
and you'll bring new things to the attention of your IA and you'll eventually get it to a place where you want it. The pre-buy is meant to catch big um, deal breaker things. Like I'm sure the SPAR was inspected at the pre-buy. I know that's a major um, issue for Cardinals that, you know, that would definitely be a deal breaker. The person that did the pre-buy, great friend, um, not an A&P. So he might not catch everything, but he knows Cardinals. And so he was looking at things that he's seen in the past uh, in other Cardinals. And that's pretty valuable uh, inspection techniques. So I'm not saying you didn't get a good pre-buy you know, but there's always going to be things that won't get caught and you shouldn't be unhappy with the state of the airplane yeah. now. I don't hear anything that's really blatant. But it's great that you're doing your first annual and uh, you, you're being so involved in it. That's a super way to get to know the airplane really well. And then when you do your pre-flights or, you know, throughout the year, you'll, you won't feel uncomfortable looking behind an inspection plate or looking in the engine compartment and you'll just have great knowledge. So maybe next, maybe next year you can you can arrange to have a virtual annual inspection. It might be less oh, expensive. That's interesting. Is that a great concept? I, it is a pandemic. Yeah. Why didn't we think of that before? Just think of how many more annuals we could get done. So it gives it lends a whole new taste to uh, owner assisted. Don't listen to them. Okay. All right. Appreciate well, the time. Thank you so much. We really enjoyed you dialing in, Peter. Enjoy that airplane. See you, Peter. Our next question is from Walter, who is questioning why our engines aren't like cars, other than the whirly thing out front. Go ahead, Walter. <laughs> well, thank you. Yeah, I, I did watch a, a, a webinar, and they were talking about the reliability of engines and aircraft engines, and they started talking about how reliable car engines are, and they were talking about, well, okay, maybe we can use some types of car engines for airplanes. And anyway, at the end of it, I started thinking to myself, why is it when we finish with our car engine and park it in the driveway or whatever, we just turn the key and the engine goes off and we walk off. But with an airplane engine, we starve it to death. <laughs> uh, so, it, so it doesn't have any more gas in the system. What is the reason? It's that big whirly thing out front, among other things. <laughs> yep. I mean, leaving gas in a cylinder is uh, leaving you the potential of that gas firing off and causing a um, the prop to turn and somebody getting hurt if you have an ungrounded mag. And that does happen every year, many does times. Yeah. Yep. I've never seen it, but I'm sure it, yeah. So it, it's a safety thing. We're trying to well, cut the... Of course, also, if you if you shut down the uh, the, the engine by, by killing the ignition, there, there are going to be a bunch of blue spots on the hangar floor uh, <laughs> yeah, that, that are coming right. out the, the induction drain. Of course, if you're, you know, parked outside, you probably don't care about that, but... Yeah, I actually, I know somebody who built a home built and they shut off the fuel at the spider. They had a separate switch that shut the fuel off at the spider, which what? seemed you know, to that, me a dangerous crazy. thing. If somebody knocked that by mistake and flight. It brings up an off. interesting question, you know, because I, I for, for about 40 years, I drove a Mercedes diesel in my car. And diesel, of course, the only way you can shut it down is to shut off the fuel. So when, when you when you turn the key to the off position of Mercedes diesel, it applied vacuum to a valve that 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 shut off the engine by starving it for fuel. But with today's new car engines, which I really don't know that much about, I'm, I drive a Tesla, so I don't worry about those things. 
but they're all computer controlled and stuff. So I'm not exactly sure what happens when you turn off the key of a, of a Toyota. Do, you know, do, does it just tell the computer you just turned off the key, do your thing? And the, well, I don't know, but I think the computer stops the fuel injection system from injecting or what, what happens? I think you shut a Tesla off by starving it for fuel, too. You know, you turn off the battery and that's about the same thing. Well, no, and then in the, in the in the Tesla, everything is you 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 can't shut off a Tesla. You, 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 you just get out of the Tesla and walk and away, it, and it eventually and it stops kind of worrying. Figures, and it kind of figures out what to do. Yeah. Yeah. Tesla Tesla's not really a car; it's a, it's a computer with wheels strapped to the bottom of it. Anyway, I think it's a good question. People don't step back and think about that, so we appreciate you coming on and. And putting us on the spot, Walter. <laughs> well, I enjoyed it. Thanks so much. Okay, you take care. Bye. Our next question is from Rolf, who is wondering if a little bit of length will make a big difference. Go ahead, Rolf. <laughs> <laughs> okay, this is about a Socata Trinidad TB20 with an IO540 engine. The engine has 1,800 hours, never had cylinders removed or anything done to the engine other than the regular maintenance, the annual, etc. has been totally trouble-free. Last year, we noticed on the EDM traces, which I'm having analyzed by Savvy Aviation, that the number one and number two EGTs were always dropping out very low when the fuel flow was low. They came back under normal fuel flow, but at low fuel flow, low power, they dropped ways out. After having checked for all sorts of things, induction leaks, spark plugs, mag timings, etc. We did a check on the intake valves, number one and number two, which share the same cam lobe to see what the valve lift was. And we noticed that the number one and number two were about four millimeters lower than any of the other intake valve lifts. Hence, indication that there is somewhere on the cam lobe going on plus potentially excessive valve lash. So my shop did the following. They measured valve clearance with a completely dry tappet, uh, mm -hmm. taking it out, getting all the oil out, putting it back together, measuring a valve clearance. And sure enough, the number one and number two intake valves were in excess of 80,000, which is the limit for a dry valve clearance. We were able to find some push tubes that corrected the valve lash and got them back down to less than 80. I, I'm, I'm trying to recall the numbers. I think it's in the 30 or 40,000, meaning right in the middle where they should be. But the EDM traces still show that the EGT-1 particularly, less so the EGT-2, is really ways dropping out when the fuel flow is low. So I guess 
my conclusion is the correction of the excessive valve clearance didn't really help the situation because of the wear on top of the valve lobe. It did correct a little bit because excessive valve clearance changes when the intake valve opens and closes, right? If you have excessive clearance, then the intake valve opens later on the cycle and closes earlier on the cycle, which lowers the portion during which the valve can take in some air. But anyhow, I guess after many, many uh, tests, we concluded there is wear on that particular number one cam lobe. And the question to you I now have is, when is a Lycoming cam with intake uh, cam lobe wear considered unairworthy? Okay, there's a lot of moving parts in this question. First of all, it's important to understand that the dry tappet clearance spec has nothing whatsoever to do with valve lift. What it has to do with is the ability of the the hydraulic lifter. The, the hydraulic lifter, when it pressurizes, eliminates any play in the in the system uh, and the hydraulic tappet is only capable of of expanding so far and so the dry tappet clearance specification is there to make sure that the amount of of play in the system is small enough that the hydraulic lifter can take it up and, and the the dry tappet clearance spec is is wide enough to drive a mac truck through it's a very wide spec but the point is that that whatever the dry tappet clearance is, the hydraulic lifter is supposed to to make it zero once it pressurizes. So the reason that there's a maximum is to make sure that that the amount of of, uh, of free play in the system is is not too large for the for for the hydraulic lifter to be able to to compensate for. So if if you were grossly above the dry tappet clearance spec, that then you could have some mechanical clatter in the system because the hydraulic lifter wasn't taking all, all of the, the free play out of it. But that wouldn't affect the lift. The the lift is simply a function of the geometry of the cam lobe and isn't gonna isn't gonna change with, with, with push rod length. Now I hope you weren't serious when you said that the lift on that on one and two were four millimeters less than the other cylinder. That's a lot. Be, because the 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 cam lobe is 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 a case hardened cam lobe. It's case hardened with a process called carburization. The cam, after it's machined, is is baked in an oven with carbon monoxide, which creates a a a high carbon layer on the outside of the cam, which is a very hard wear surface. That hardened layer is only about 15 thousandths of an inch thick. And I'm, I, I'm not feeling sharp enough to convert that to millimeters, but it's not very much. And if the cam lobe is worn more than that amount, 
in other words, it's worn through that that fifteen thousandths of an inch case hardened layer. Then you're running on the uh, on the unhardened metal that's in the in the inside of the cam. I mean, the, the the reason that they case harden the cam is that if they if they threw hardened the cam and made it all that hard, it 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 would be brittle and it would just break. So the cam has to be somewhat ductile and and they call it tough on the inside and and really really hard on the outside so that so that there's a there's a wear surface that that that, that won't erode but if you wear through that 15 thousandths of an inch thick case hardened surface then the wear on the cam will accelerate dramatically because now now the lifter is running on on much softer metal and the the lobe will go flat very quickly and and normally you find this out normally either when a cylinder comes off for some unrelated reason and you get to eyeball the cam or when you discover there's a bunch of ferrous metal in the in the oil filter that came from this accelerated wear of the cam lobe um, yeah we looked at that and we can't the last time we changed oil, which was just recently, uh, we couldn't really see any particles in the oil filter paper. Good. Uh, so from that standpoint, uh, I'm not sure what's going on. As far as I know, neither Continental nor Lycoming publish a valve lift spec. So, the, the, you know, you asked the question, how, how far does... Can the cam lobe wear down uh, before it's unairworthy? I think that that's not an answerable question uh, in terms of some kind of a hard spec that the manufacturer provides. Lycoming does provide a lot of guidance as to what to do when you see metal in the filter. And they have a really, really good service bulletin that talks basically about, you know, for various quantities of various kinds of metal, here's what you should do. And they they don't call for taking the engine out of service unless there's a lot of metal in the filter, a large amount. And as far as I know, you know, I I, I always joke about the fact that cam and lifter problems are not a safety of flight item; they're a safety of wallet item. No, no, nobody ever fell out of the sky, as far as I know, because of a worn cam lobe. But you may fall out of your chair at annual time when you discover. <laughs> <laughs> that you've got a $50,000 overhaul bill that you weren't planning yeah. on. Well, and at this point, if the cam is given trouble, there really isn't anything you can do to save it on a Lycoming. You can't pull lifters and do any changes like that. And by the way, four millimeters, according to the, you know, there's an app for that, is, a, <laughs> is 157 thousandths of an inch. So oh, that's okay. over <laughs> an eighth of an inch. That's huge. That so is really big. <laughs> that's 10 times the thickness of the carburized, the case hardened yeah. layer then. Okay. So then if if that were the case, and I, I had a Lycoming-powered uh, Skyhawk 15 years ago that had a cam lobe that had gone to almost totally round. And it had been flying in flight training here locally for a long time. And they finally came around and said, you know, the airplane just doesn't have any power anymore. Just barely... You know, the climb outs are terrible. It won't make any book spec on takeoff rolls and all that. So we started looking around and found out the, I think it was the intake valve uh, on one side and on another that were just not hardly opening at all. I mean, 
put a borescope in there. It's like, they're definitely not opening enough. So we pulled the cylinder and sure enough, one lobe out in the entire engine was just worn to a circle. Wow. Um, and we That's never saw anything in the filter. <laughs> circle. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I would not overreact to this. I would not ground the engine. I would not stop flying it uh, un unless you start seeing large amounts of ferrous metal in the, in the oil filter. At that point, you pretty much have to do something. But but you could start you could start doing some advanced financial planning maybe that might be the <laughs> appropriate <you> response. <laughs> it is a Lycoming. <laughs> it is a Lycoming. Yeah. Oh, and, and 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 well, and the the other part of the planning process is that there's like a nine month lead time on getting uh, yeah factory yeah. engines right now. So yeah, don't pull that engine. <laughs> yeah, you could you could you you might want. To you might want to place an order for yeah. Get your order in delivery <laughs> at Christmas or something. Well, as long as the engine is running and compressions are fine, oil consumption is fine, uh, fuel consumption is on the money. You're yeah. safe. I really have no reason to say this thing is not running. Right. Agreed. Yes. That's the, the, so I guess we'll stick in a bore scope and just do a visual check with the intake valves. Well, Ralph, it sounds like you've got a couple things to chew on here, but um sounds like your engine's still chugging along. So good luck with that. That's the main thing. Yes. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, thank you for your help today. I really appreciate having this conversation with all you experts. Thank you for calling in. We appreciate your question. Enjoy the call. It was, it was an interesting, interesting question. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Well, that's a wrap. The three of us know a lot more about maintenance than podcasting, so we'd love to hear from you. Give us your ideas on what you would like to hear. You can send your comments and questions to podcasts at aopa.org. Fly safely and have fun out there as the weather begins to get better. We'll see you next time. See ya. Bye-bye.